our time together today has already been so enriching, so enthralling, and in such a disposition of heart and mind, no doubt, to help each of us draw closer to the God whom we love and the God who has loved us so to send His Son to die for us. It still is said, isn't it, that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Verse number 16 of John chapter 3. It is the case this morning, as has already been mentioned, not only the announcements, but in a few of the other aspects of our time together already. The blessings, of course, come to us not only from the perspective of fellowship, but the opportunity for the next few moments to give some thought to the Word of God. That Bible that you and I have so readily at our disposal is certainly the guide that leads us to the pathways of understanding the things we must know. The title of the lesson today, as Brother Eddie mentioned a moment ago, already also seen in the bulletin and on the wall to my left, has to do with the second coming of our Lord, the second coming of Christ. Perhaps a few introductory comments pointing us toward the thoughts that will rest before us today might well be these. It is true, isn't it, that we're beset with a host of uncertainties in life. Your career and mine the status of your health and mine. We certainly look forward to good health tomorrow and next week, and if God permits, next year. But you and I also know that bad news, or at least unhealthy news, could come at almost any time. And we also appreciate well that the nature of our country, it could so easily change, it could so easily direct itself in a different fashion and manner. We seem to learn to deal, mustn't we, with uncertainties that are about us. There are also disappointments. Sometimes those others about us let us down. They don't live up to their word. They are, in fact, sometimes advantageous of us for one reason or another. The point being, we have both disappointments and uncertainties. But at the bottom of that slide, the Lord Himself can always be trusted, can't He? No matter what He said, no matter the particular principle that He enunciated or set forth, we can rest assured that the Lord is trustworthy. He's reliable. Although many things might be studied, our interest will be, what about His second coming? Over the next few moments, I would invite you to unfold with me some thoughts about the second coming of our Master. The second coming of Christ, and in that aspect, appreciate that He can so often be the thoroughfare of peace and comfort relative to that great and noble event, the second coming. It is something that, sadly enough, we don't seem to hear as much about as we once did. Can it be truthfully said that you and I seemingly don't hear much on a day-to-day -day basis about the second coming? I frankly confess, when we come together, we should be reminded of it as we will be today, but if you're like me, you don't hear nearly as much about it in the common walk of life. And in some ways, that's a shame for that reason. Why don't we then proceed as follows? I put the lesson together in a way that's built somewhat like this. First of all, let's be reminded for the first few moments at least of the lesson about the grandeur and the greatness and the majesty of the Lord's first coming. It is true that during the course of that coming and while here, He set before us some incredible teachings relative to the time He would in fact come again. 
Our Savior came to this earth to execute God's marvelous plan of human salvation. The plan of human redemption. For after all, from that time in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve partook of that fruit of which they were not to partake, they were separated from God by sin, but no perfect sacrifice had at that time been found. In fact, wasn't it true that there were several prophecies in the Old Testament pointing to the reality from that time of a perfect, absolutely necessary sacrifice at some point. Without the shedding of blood is no remission. Hebrews 9.22 And yet, not many verses later in Hebrews 10, verse 4, it says, The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. And so God dispatched the second member of the Godhead, a portion of Himself, the Son, to this earth, whereby He could ultimately bring to fruition that plan whereby mankind could be saved. In John 6, verse 38, Jesus said, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me. The Lord came, you see, to execute God's plan, to bring about His will, and in so doing, what great benefit, of course, that continues to be for us. As the Lord Himself made that statement, consider with me this in Luke 24. In verses 46 and 47, this is Luke's version of that great commission. He said, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins might be preached in His name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Did you notice that phrase in the midst of that, in His name? Apart from Him, there is no remission from sin. Apart from Him, there is no need for repentance. But yet He commands it. And it is He that has set before us the necessity of that relative to any of us being eternally saved. Thus the Lord's first visit, His first sojourn here upon this earth was so very important. Maybe that importance, of course, is recognized by the careful instruction that He gave those that would be His followers. He charged those apostles that they might appreciate the nature of the call given to them. You go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That's a part of, again, of Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. In thinking about then the Lord's coming, notice His central vision and thought was what is necessary for their salvation. Oh, how wonderful it is then to appreciate that the Lord's work did reach its conclusion in the flesh at some point, didn't it? His public ministry lasting a bit over three years. And as that time came to its end, we notice He was crucified, nailed to a cross, put to death. But then, of course, on that Sunday morning, that first day of the week, He rose from the dead. And not too many days later... He ascended back to heaven. His work here had been completed. He now reigns in complete authority on, over, the throne of, over the throne of spiritual Israel in heaven. But we notice, do we not, that His work in that aspect of flesh being completed, notice some of the things He said about His second coming. You'll notice that first coming, as great as it was, there is something, though, to be said about yet a future coming beyond that one. Perhaps it'd be wise at this point again to observe that there are those that do scoff at that second coming. There are those in the world in which you and I live 
who quite frankly, either directly or indirectly, don't really believe that the Lord's going to come back. I've listed for you at the bottom of that slide this observation, which certainly isn't a revelation to any of us. It has been a long time since the Lord ascended back to heaven. It has now been almost 2,000 years. And so, as you and I notice, it's been a long time from your perspective and mine. Generations have come and gone. Nations have risen and fallen. This world, geographically, at least by country boundary, bears in some ways little resemblance to what it did way back then. It's been a long time. For that reason, some think, well, it's been so long, what reason do I have to believe He'll ever come back? What reason is there to think by the orchestration of events that the Lord will ever return? There are some who feel that way. In 2 Peter chapter 3, even the inspired apostle had that thought in mind when he said, Knowing this first, that in the last days there shall arise scoffers. And you'll notice they'll ask this question in verse 4. Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were since the days. You'll notice the observation, scoffers, those who make light of, those who take very little serious consideration to. And notice, where is the promise of His coming? Peter said that in that day, in the sense that there would be those that would have that kind of mindset. We shouldn't be then too surprised that there are scoffers relative to this subject. As you can see at the bottom of that slide, there are those who explicitly say the Lord won't come back. They will stand before an audience and absolutely decry the Bible. They'll make light of those that believe in it. and They'll say the Lord is not coming back. They are convinced of it. Now there are other people who do have at least some reservation relative to the fact and so they won't openly profess before a group, but in their mind they have their doubts. In their mind they just aren't sure. It is the case relative to the second coming that perhaps these thoughts ought to be our next stopping point. Here are some statistics that quite frankly are rather troubling. Statistics, three of which are as follows. These might be amplified many times over, but I thought that these three would be enough. In 1941, which admittedly was several years ago now, but you'll notice this statistic follows. A poll taken of a rather wide range of preachers, some of which were denominational. 27% of them did not believe in the second coming. Go forward several years to 1961. Some 99% of those seminary students polled at least had reservations about the second coming of Christ. Finally, 1977, 92% of students who were studying and training to become a preacher, 92% of them denied the reality of the second coming of Christ. I suppose that that's one of the reasons then why we hear so little about it. Those that were trained and those who have preached then to a generation or more of individuals don't even believe in the second coming. They at least have their serious reservations about its ever happening. I suppose then that offers powerful reflection for the rest of our lesson today then. 
we're not interested in a poll taken, nor are we interested in the speculative appreciations of others. We'd like to know, what does the Bible teach about the second coming? Ought we to have reservations relative to it? Or is it just the opposite of that fact? It might be wise at this point then to say that there are a number of ideas and very prominent and powerful teachings that hinge in fact, are closely associated with the second coming of Jesus. No wonder then as you think about the general resurrection, if one has doubts about the second coming, doesn't it naturally follow? One will then have some doubt about the general resurrection. If one doesn't believe in the Lord's second coming, one will almost surely have some misunderstanding about the day of judgment for that event follows the Lord's second coming. And finally, if one doesn't appreciate, as one should, the second coming, doesn't it then at least lead one to perhaps have some misinformation about eternity? For all three of those things, at least in the way the Bible presents them, as their completion follows the second coming. No wonder then the problems that often result, the things that come before us, do require we have a proper understanding of Jesus' second coming. On this slide, you'll notice the New Testament teaches frequently, often, the second coming of Jesus. I've listed just a sampling of verses from a variety of individual speakers, but let's briefly look at each one as we build a strong foundation on the topic and subject of the Lord's second coming. First of all, you'll notice that the words of Jesus Himself... As we listen to Jesus, this was right before His crucifixion. In fact, in John 14, beginning in verse 1, the Lord Himself said to those apostles who at this point were bearing a bit of trouble, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will come again. The verb that the Lord used, the sentence structure that He employed, offers no misunderstanding, no option, no doubt. He said, If I go, I will come again, and receive you unto Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. As Jesus taught then about the nature of the second coming, we shall notice that again the Apostle Paul had some things to say about it as well. You'll notice in particular in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, the Thessalonian congregation was a bit bothered and troubled by those who were giving them improper and false information about the second coming. And Paul addressed a letter to them to set things straight and to correct their misunderstandings. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, "...for the Lord Himself shall descend with a shout of the archangel, with a trump of God." and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Might I ask you to notice that there's a pronoun utilized in that verse. It says, the Lord Himself shall descend. It's not as if there's an ambassador He's going to send in His place. It's not as if He's going to do this in a symbolic fashion. He Himself shall descend. As you and I reflect on that, Paul also put it in these words in Titus 2.13 looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of the Lord. 
we notice then that as Jesus himself, on that occasion, Paul addressed to Titus, said he too is something that we should look forward to the coming of that event. You'll notice that even John addressed these thoughts as he had some things to say about it too. In 1 John chapter 3, verse number 2, we notice there, just to notice a part of that verse, John said that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. You'll notice the Lord's going to appear. That word He in that passage makes reference to Jesus Himself. Later in Revelation 1, verse number 7, the opening stanza, if you please, of that book of Revelation, in a fantastic passage on that occasion, John penned these words for us. He said, Behold, every eye shall see Him, even those that pierced Him. On that occasion when the Lord appears, John says, Everyone's going to be aware of this event. There will not be any secretive aspect to it. There will not be any aspect by which some may miss it. Some may not avail themselves of the occurrence. Finally, you might appreciate with me the record of those angelic visitors that Brother Reddy Brother Eddie read just a moment ago. In Acts chapter 1, verses 9, 10, and 11, if we may especially observe verse number 11, this was the occasion of the Lord's ascension back into glory. And it says, these visitors, these angelic ones said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen Him go into heaven. That leaves no room for misunderstanding, does it? As they were there watching Him rise up in their very midst and disappear into the eternal glory of the beyond, these angelic visitors said, the same one as you've seen go will return in like manner as you have seen Him leave. Now might we observe in that it does not say He'd ever return to the earth per se. It doesn't say He'd return and set foot here, but in like manner to the way in which He departed is the very same manner in which He shall reappear. Maybe in light of all those things, we can make this interesting observation. This subject we've raised so far this morning, the second coming of Christ... We've only touched a mere handful of the verses that might well have been mentioned. For on average, one out of every 25 verses in the New Testament makes reference to either directly or indirectly the second coming of our Master. This is a topic that is so thorough, so needful, so vital to the full embodiment of New Testament truth that it occurs that often in the pages of the New Testament. It then is a great sadness, isn't it, that it's misunderstood so, that it's mistaught in such a way that it often is. Perhaps for those reasons, why don't we then give some thought to what appears on this slide. What about that second coming? What are some things that you and I can so quickly and so readily embed in our heart and mind relative to this grand and great subject one of the first questions that has been the subject of many problems throughout the centuries has been, when is this going to occur? When will the second coming take place? Isn't it amazing that it seems every so often there's an individual of sufficient brashness and sufficient confidence 
that he or she will make a definitive prediction as to the date of the Lord's second coming. They think that by some secretive interpretation of the Bible or by some new approach to some passages, they have figured it out. Here are just a few of those who might rest before us as considerations who've done that very thing. I chose three random dates. What about December the 15th later this year? Will the Lord return that day? What about, oh, some 400 years or so from now? What about, well, over 800,000 years from now? The point is, none of us know. And the Bible does not tell us the special date on which that return will be. As we've already learned, we know for sure that it shall take place. We can rest assured without any doubt, without any uncertainty at all relative to it, but as far as that date or the hour of that day on which it shall occur, we do not know. In fact, look at the bottom of that slide. Just to briefly make mention of a, a small number of names and individuals who are in this category. Let's begin with the book of First and Second Thessalonians. As you notice carefully in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, we find there that to the congregation in Thessalonica, a letter had been sent. A particular correspondence they had received, and it specifically taught that the second coming was very near at hand at that time. Paul wrote these letters to them and said, I did not say that. Paul said, we don't know the time. Chapter 5 verse 2 says, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 2. So Paul said, I didn't say that. That letter's false. Someone has forged it. But beyond that, notice over the succeeding centuries, just a sampling of names. Might we begin with this one? The date was 1843. You and I know that wasn't too long prior to the Civil War era in our own country, but the religious movement was strong and mighty in our land, and a gentleman named William Miller who was, in fact, the forerunner of those that would be the Seventh-day Adventists, he made this prediction. He was sure that he had figured out the date of the Lord's second coming. And in fact, he even publicized it near and far. There were a number of individuals who took great confidence in what the gentleman said. He predicted that he would come near the fall time of the season in the year 1843. As the days built up to that time... There was a frenzy amongst those especially were his followers. The day passed without any slight inconvenience or any slight difficulty or even any notoriety at all. He quickly made the claim, I miscalculated. I failed to take into account the international date line, so he said, and thus he predicted in the fall of 1844. He said, it's assured it's an absolute thing, I'll guarantee it. This time again, many believed what he said. In fact, his followers were so overwhelmed this time, they sold their possessions, many of them did, thinking for sure they would no longer need them. The second coming was here. Some of them even climbed up mountains so they could in fact get the first view of the, of the returned Lord. Some of them who didn't have access to mountains, even climbed trees, thinking again that that might allow them nearness and they might be able to view Him sooner than others. 
the fall of 1844, that date came and went without any notoriety at all. By this time, many left following him. Twice he had predicted, twice he had missed, and many now recognized him to be a false prophet, far different than what he had claimed. That's only one example of many others. Charles Russell might be mentioned, the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses. We notice he too had the audacity to make a number of claims. I've only listed, in fact, a very small set. As you give thought to those that are of that mental belief, the characteristics that have come about to this day, if you have conversation, they will tell you the Lord did come in 1914. They will claim that He came in 1914, but only a selected few were blessed to appreciate it, and only a certain number appreciated that coming. 1914. May I say to you that, again, here are individuals who've made predictions. And might we again say that in Revelation 1-7 it said, Every eye shall see Him. It says nothing about a secretive return. It says nothing about a supposed rapturous event in which only a selected set of saints will appreciate that moment. Perhaps finally you'll notice on that list, a gentleman named Hal Lindsey wrote a book. This book gained great acclaim because it made this interesting observation. We each recognize that the state of Israel was formed in 1948. The modern state, the modern country of Israel. After a small period of warfare in the Middle Eastern part of the world, the land that you and I now call the country of Israel politically was formed in the year 1948. This gentleman, Hal Lindsay, then taking some portions of Matthew chapter 24 in which Jesus said, This generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Taking that out of its context, he said, in 1988, Jesus is going to reappear. Take 1948, add 40 years to it, the time of one generation. Many followed that idea. They followed that thinking. They took it to heart. And they were just sure that in 1988, Jesus was going to reappear. Well, you and I all know that 1988 came and went. Many things historically might have had an interest that year, but Jesus did not appear. You and I are now, as you can see, a couple of decades this side of 1988. Maybe all of those are example enough to remind us that it isn't that surprising when every now and then some worldwide event, some interesting geopolitical occurrence will make a person write some book and to the top of the New York Times bestseller list it will rise. In it, he will make use of some passages and say that some date is now arriving at which the Lord will appear. May there be no mistake. Jesus will appear. But as we come to this next slide, the central teaching of the New Testament is this. The Lord Himself stated there will be no signs of His second coming. He said there will be no signs whereby one can decipher, calculate, predict, determine the time of that second coming. And so isn't it, in fact, an almost blasphemous thing when some individual says that I, by studying Daniel, and that is the most famous book to which men turn, that by studying Daniel I figured out when Jesus is going to come back. May we say that the Lord was well familiar with the book of Daniel. 
In fact, he quoted from it more than once. Isn't it, in fact, a strange thing that if Jesus couldn't take the book of Daniel and figure out when he supposedly will come back, isn't it a far stretch to believe a human being can do it? May we realize there are no hidden signs, no hidden appreciations, and most recently, you and I have noted that the Da Vinci Code and other kinds of books like that point us to some again who sometimes fictionally, sometimes otherwise, make claims about the second coming of Jesus. The Lord Himself will, just, will come back as a thief in the night. Isn't it still true that thieves don't send a letter saying, I'll be over at 10.30 Friday night? We understand that's not the way they operate. They come secretively. They come at a time when it's not expected. Jesus said, that's how I'm returning. As Paul wrote those Thessalonians again in verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians 5, that point he so quickly and powerfully asserted. Peter, of course, joined in that thought in 2 Peter 3, verse number 10. In fact, as we rehearse that thought, notice, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Second Peter 3, verses 10 and 11. The inspired writer there affirmed, the Lord's coming back. It'll come as a thief in the night. We don't know when it'll be. The thrust then is that you and I might live wisely circumspectly in a way of godliness. Beyond those verses, you'll appreciate that even Jesus touched on this very subject before us this morning when He addressed it in Matthew 24. I've in fact called your attention two verses from that chapter and then one from the next one. The setting and the scene is an almost unforgettable one. Jesus on this occasion was near the conclusion of His public ministry. He was making that final dis distance, that final sojourn. We notice, in fact, as He left the temple area and crossed through the Kidron Valley and ascended that Mount of, of Olives on the eastern side of the city, the apostles and those disciples around Him called His attention. Do you see this temple? Do you see these buildings, how great they are? And Jesus quickly said... I'm telling you, the day's coming, not one stone will be left on another. These were almost aghast, thinking, how could that be? These stones are massive, they're large, they're set in place. And so four of them came privately. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, when he got to the Mount of Olives, and they came privately and said, Lord, tell us, when shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Did you note the second question they asked? What shall be the sign of thy coming? That's the very question we're addressing this morning, isn't it? Jesus, what are the signs of your coming? So we can know. Over that chapter and all of the next one, He described the answers to those questions. And you'll notice in particular, with respect to that first question, the destruction of that temple, the destruction of that city, it took the Lord all the way until verse number 35 of Matthew 24 to answer that question, didn't it? Then beginning in verse 36, He paints the answer to the other questions. At least the thing that He was able to say. In fact, in that verse number 36, 
maybe it highlights for us, he said, there are no signs of that event. In Matthew 25, verse 13, again, in, the, in that very same response, Jesus said, but of that day and that hour, what day, Lord, the day of my coming? Of that day and that hour knoweth no man, neither the angels in heaven, not even the Son. Even the angels don't know when that day will be. And yet there are men who think they figured it out. There are individuals who think that they, by their own ingenuity, have figured it out. Certainly not. You'll notice also in light of those verses, perhaps one final set of thoughts on that slide, and our lesson today will have drawn to its conclusion. As we've noted already today, the Lord's second coming is a certainty, but none of us know when. It might be this afternoon. It might be tomorrow. It might be later this year. It might be next year. But then again, it might not be. It might be in 10 years from now, but then again, it might not be. The critical idea is to always be ready, to live each day prepared so that whenever the Lord's return is, you and I will be prepared to die or at least to leave this life prepared for judgment. Isn't it interesting that that was the thought of the Lord's message, wasn't it? In light of the fact we don't know when, didn't Jesus say, Watch, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Isn't that amazing? Watch, be alert, be vigilant, and in so doing live wisely, because you do not know the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man comes. We can in fact be greatly reminded that though men may speculate about the second coming as to when, And though there are some who have their doubts about it, we need have no doubts about its occurrence. It shall take place. And what a glorious occasion it shall be for those who have made preparation and lived wisely. Wasn't it true again that Paul said, The dead in Christ shall rise first. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 Oh, how wonderfully you and I can look forward then to that occasion whenever the Lord returns, that if we have lived wisely and thus died in the Lord, Revelation 14, 13, we shall then be able to enjoy with grandeur and wonder all the aspects of both the judgment and eternity to follow. For indeed, there shall be no serious cause for regret. But what about the other side of that coin? What about one that lives unwisely? one that chooses to live either directly or indirectly as if the second coming is a meaningless thing. Obviously, that person does not give much thought for the judgment. You see, you and I shall stand before the august presence of the God of heaven and give an answer for the deeds done in the body. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Romans 14, 12 says it like this, So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. The Lord is coming back, and he, according to John 5, 22, shall serve as our judge. Are you ready to meet the judge? Am I ready to meet him? When he comes back, it will be a sweet occasion for those prepared. It will be eternally regretful for those not. The plan of salvation is given to you and to me. And as we give thought to it again, rehearse what a moving moment it was when those angelic visitors made that comment to those apostles. 
as they stood watching their master ascend up into glory. Can you imagine how their mind must have raised, wondering what is this and will anything like it ever happen again? And those angelic visitors said, He's coming back in the same way you've seen Him go. Are you ready for Him to come back? Am I ready for Him to come back? You notice that when He does, if we happen to be alive, we'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye, 1 Corinthians 15, 51. There won't be any time to go get baptized then. There won't be any time to quickly make a prayer of repentance. We must be ready. There will be no advantage for those that happen to be alive. You and I must be ready. Each day in the glorious light of the goodness of the gospel, living for our Lord, hand in hand with Him, so that we can say with Paul, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me for the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Are you then living by faith this day? Have you become a Christian? Are you living faithfully to that calling? The plan of salvation demands of each one that you believe Jesus with all your heart to be the Son of God, that you repent of your sins, that you confess Him, and that you, in fact, be baptized for the remission of sins. All things are prepared today, and if you haven't attended to that need, we could take care of that in just a few moments, and Jesus will add you to His kingdom. Your name will be put into the book of life, and if you live faithfully till death, heaven is yours. If you've become a Christian, though, and you for a while knew the power and majesty of the second coming, and you lived a life based on the reality and watchfulness of that event, but you have since lost your focus... You began to walk off on tangents and you've lived in a way that's displeasing to God. Don't remain in that condition. Notice the Thessalonians, Paul warned, even though they might have been baptized, they were misled and they needed to come back to a proper life and understanding. That's the same message for you too. We'd be honored to pray for you and with you. And in just a moment, Brother Adam's going to lead us in a hymn of encouragement. If we could be of help to anyone this very day. May we take this lesson from us. Don't have any uncertainty about the second coming. It's going to happen. The need for us is to watch and be ready. And if you're not ready, make it so this very day. And if we can help, let us do that while together we stand and while we sing.